1: Ahoy, dear people of the internet! From sunny San Diego, I'm Greg Carlwood, and as we've sifted through the grimoires of old, indigenous traditions, and examined the work of bright minds that were way ahead of their times, we've learned that there has always been a current of deep insight and knowledge running just below the Empire's official word. Yes, it seems like at any time depth you'll find those who have been marginalized by the authority of their day, and those closest to nature usually have the best handle on what this world even is. Rich and deep cosmologies that crush the material model, robust and detailed catalogs of effective plant medicines that Big Pharma can't match, and spiritual understandings that go far beyond a few Hail Marys on a beaded necklace. Today, it's easier than ever to absorb suppressed or misunderstood material from almost any time and space on this island earth that you might be drawn to, But hey, the Umbrella Academy isn't going to watch itself, right? And although occult does mean hidden, today it's a much better match for ignored. Lucky for us, though, some people out there are bringing back some of the lost arts, and one of them is the thrice-great Phoenix Aurelius. For the unfamiliar, Phoenix is a self-taught spagyricist who has been practicing and teaching the alchemical arts and sciences since 2005. After an unprecedented inheritance of alchemical and hermetic writings and notes in 2010, Phoenix took a considerable interest in the medical philosophies and actions of Paracelsus and has been reconstructing spagyric theory, philosophy, practice, and pharmacopoeia for the 21st century ever since. He now runs the Phoenix Aurelius Research Academy, which you can learn more about at phoenixaurelius.org. It's just what the doctor ordered, people, and I'm pretty psyched to get into this one. The knowledge reconstructor, prima materia transmuter, and educator of the alchemical ways. Phoenix, my man, welcome to the higher side.
0: Hey, thanks so much, Greg. I really appreciate uh, the opportunity to come on today.
1: Yes, I am so, so happy to have you here. This is super interesting stuff. And ever since my man Crow mentioned your work in our last interview, I've been looking forward to diving in whole hog. And here we are. I'm sure it gets a little old starting with the same old fundamentals, but this is very off the radar stuff, and I know that spagyrics is the application of alchemical science to the plant kingdom, but beyond that, how do you like to lay a foundation for this stuff for the uninitiated?
0: Yeah, so pretty simply a guy named Paracelsus, or at least that was his kind of pen name, his pseudonym, his name was Theophrastus Bombastus Philippus von Hohenheim. Also known as Paracelsus. He was born in the late 1490s and died in the 1540s. And in the 1530s, he published a number of different works, a very prolific author, and among them, Volumen Paramirum. He also had Das Opus Paragrenum. He had a number of different texts medically that utilized alchemical philosophy along with cutting-edge medical philosophy, especially of his time. And he was the very first person who suggested that the Galenic theory, or the theory of the four humors of Aristotelian-based medicine, really didn't hold a candle to many of the diseases, and that most of the doctors were actually aggravating the symptoms or killing most of their patients. And as a Hippocratic oath of, first, do no harm, that they were actually breaking their own oaths. And so his father was a physician in this tiny little town in Switzerland, a mountain passing town called Einziden. And he had a lot of experience as a young kid learning from his father, although he was a bastard and couldn't inherit his father's fortune or goods. He was able to see and be involved in surgeries and medicine and things like that from a very young age. And then he joined the Swiss army, and from doing that, he traveled all across the Holy Roman Empire of Germany at the time, Germany and Austria, and was able to serve in wars and actually help people as a medic. And in doing this, he was able to find out that there were a lot of interesting things that were not practiced in Galenic medicine at the time that severely helped increase the chances of people's survival. And he ran into a lot of different folk healers on battlefields and so on and so forth. And over all of his tenure of doing that and studying alchemy and so on and so forth, he developed a very significant cosmology not only of how to prepare what we would now refer to as spagyric medicines, but he also came up with an entire theory of medicine called spagyric medicine today that Basically, encompasses a a wide range of various philosophies and thoughts, ranging from that the stars can possibly be one cause of disease, which I've confirmed with my own IDF analysis in our research academy. And that he actually says that there are five causes of disease and that there are four pillars to the practice and the theory of spagyria. So he basically came up with all of this, and I stumbled upon this. As a kid, printing off a technique to make a spagyric tincture, I didn't even know what the term spagyric meant at the time, to make a spagyric tincture in my high school lab during free periods. And because I dislocated my ankle and most of my friends were skaters, I wasn't able to skate. So I retreated to the mountains and started working with the plants there, having no idea what their medicinal virtue was, just working with them with this method. And a couple of years later, I learned it was called spagyric and eventually got into the works of Froder Albertus, who ran the largest alchemical school in the world for over 500 years here in Salt Lake City, Utah, from 1960 to 1984. And unfortunately, he was dead by the time I was even around on the scene, but I was able to, through fate and fortune, inherit a lot of the materials from his secretary and staff who were getting out of alchemy. They were in their 80s and I happened to inherit a lot of things, handwritten notes, labware, a lot of her materials that she had practiced with. And she didn't just study with Frater Albertus, she also studied with Jean Dubuis of the Philosophers of Nature. And so, yeah, I was able to start picking up the practices. And like you mentioned in my introduction, I picked up a real fascination for Paracelsus, both as an individual. Character who I've always found really fascinating, but also his medical philosophies and seeing if they have any sort of substance today. Because even in the medical realm today, if you go to medical school, you'll learn that Paracelsus was the father of toxicology. He was also the inventor of iatrochemistry. He was the first person documented to really begin using anesthesia in his surgery clients and so on and so forth. And so he revolutionized so much of what modern medicine is built upon and it just feels like a lot of his work fell subject to the case of throwing the baby out with the bathwater during the time of the scientific revolution by the time van helmont and boyle and others came on the scene with the scientific revolution you know paracelsus used a lot of religious reasonings for why his things would work and instead of testing what did work and what didn't work they just kind of did away with a lot of his philosophy and started moving in a different direction so here i am in the 21st century Being able to pick up a lot of that information and go back and, as an apologist is technically the term, being able to see if there's any of the works or theories that he had that still stand the test of time today in a perennial fashion, especially with the advancement of modern science that we have. So that would kind of set the precedent for what it is that I do and how I do it.
1: Yeah, that's a great summary. And you're definitely on a wild ride yourself. I guess, talk to us about the components that everything is made of according to alchemy, the soul, spirit, and body, and how this is going to apply to the plant kingdom specifically.
0: Sure. And I guess before I go on, I I want to talk just to the fact that Spagaria is in no way limited to the plant kingdom. In fact, it's the lack of understanding of most people today and even students of the 20th century who called spagyria plant alchemy. It has virtually nothing to do with that. In fact, the entire corpus of alchemy is one of the pillars of spagyric medicine. And so if you can't make metallic and mineral materials, you can't actually be a very talented spagirist because the entire corpus of alchemy is one of the prerequisites to actually practice spagyria. But I can talk to the plant alchemy work and how this relates. So for centuries before Paracelsus, there was an Arabic philosopher known as Al-Jabir, or sometimes just known as Geber, G-E-B-E-R, in the West. And Al-Jabir came up with the concept of a sulfur-mercury theory that everything in nature rules or is governed over by these dual aspects of sulfur and mercury with sulfur being the positive pole or you could maybe call that masculine and mercury being the feminine pole by the time paracelsus got around to that he highly criticized that theory and said no this isn't actually true there's three principles there's sulfur mercury and salt and mercury is not a feminine principle mercury is actually an androgynous principle or a hermaphroditic principle and that salt is the feminine principle and this is the third principle that he calls it and so he says that there's sulfur mercury and salt in all sorts of things now for the modern mind most people would hear that and say oh okay so this means that everything has chemical sulfur like brimstone and everything has metallic mercury and everything has sodium chloride salt but that's not at all what the alchemists were talking about and certainly not what paracelsus was talking about he was using these as what we call philosophic essentials and he called these very frequently a latin term tria prima which means the first three the reason is is that when we separate out any material in nature plants included that we arrive at these three very basic principles and so in modern terminology sulfur would be the soul of a material mercury would be the spirit of a material and salt would be the body of a material. And in the plant kingdom, the way that that looks is that when we extract a plant with alcohol or ethanol or, I guess, ethanol ethanol and alcohol are technically the same thing, but diethyl, ether, you know, ethyl acetate, any of these different solvents, what we end up getting after we distill off that solvent would be the fixed sulfur of the material. And the fixed sulfur is like the... If we were to work on cannabis, it would be the terpenoids of the material. So your CBDs, your CBGs, your THC, so on and so forth. Those would all be part of the fixed sulfur of the material, and it retains the identity of the color of the material that you extracted and so on and so forth. If we were to perform an essential oil distillation, then that yields the volatile sulfur or the higher soul of the material. And that would be the terpenes, or what we would refer to more commonly as the essential oils of the material. And so there are always these two different grades of sulfur that exist in varying amounts. And in some plants, you can't actually isolate the essential oil, but you can always get at the fixed sulfur. And so the sulfur principle is the active medicinal constituency of the material. And again, like I mentioned, it's broken into two concepts, the fixed and the volatile and then in the vegetable kingdom when you ferment a plant there are two ways of fermenting there's an anaerobic fermentation and an aerobic fermentation anaerobic means that you stick the plants underwater and they can't breathe they can only exhale so they can't inhale any oxygen and this is the way that we would produce alcohol today and this kind of process yields what we would call the volatile mercury, which we can distill off and rectify up to 95% pure spirit or even higher with a couple of other little clever techniques to get it 100% pure. And this is the spirit of the material. And when you go to the alcohol store today, you still will hear the term spirits being used to refer to the alcoholic distillates that come from ferments. So this would be the spirit of the material or what we would call the volatile spirit. And if you ferment something aerobically, like for instance, if you take sugar and tea and add in a kombucha culture, that's an aerobic ferment because we don't seal it off. We just place a little muslin cloth or whatever over the top and vinegar is produced in very much so the same way. And it produces acids. And when we rectify out these acids, for the most part, especially with vinegar, this creates acetic acid. And so acetic acid would be the fixed mercury of the vegetable kingdom. And finally, when we take all of the biomass material that's either been extracted and or fermented, and then we burn it down to an ash and leach the material from that ash, all of the essential mineral body from that ash, For the most part in the mineral kingdom, it all reduces down to chemically what we would call potassium carbonate. And this is what we would call the salt of the material. And there's technically two different forms of salt. There is the salt of salt, and then there's also the salt of sulfur. So the salt of salt comes from calcining, leaching out the minerals and crystallizing them from the herb material itself that was either extracted or fermented. And then the salt of sulfur comes from burning down and calcining the fixed sulfur of a plant and getting that. Now, chemically, the salt of salt and salt of sulfur are exactly the same. Again, from a chemical standpoint, they end up being potassium carbonate, 99.98 plus percent potassium carbonate after crystallization. But they have two entirely different effects in the work. And you can see that the salt of sulfur tends to be able to be volatilized more readily. And it also takes on more interesting crystallization uh, patterns when we crystallize it slowly in the laboratory. So there are some differences. They don't taste different, they don't look different. Chemically, they're not different, they're identical, but there are differences to them in the way that they behave, especially when added back to the material. So in the vegetable kingdom, these are basically the six parts of the tria prima, the three, sulfur, mercury, and salt, that end up showing themselves to us.
1: Amazing, man. That is a great breakdown. And using cannabis as an example is a nice touch. I appreciate that. And so obviously we know that essential oils are sold. We know alcohol is sold. So it seems like we separate the aspects, but we just don't have any recombination of them in Western culture. That maybe seems to be the gist, but For some people, it probably sounds really weird to say you're separating the soul, spirit, and body of a plant. We have a hard time accepting that we have a soul ourselves sometimes. But I've heard you talk about some strange things that you see during these processes. For example, when you're doing something called the volatilization of the salt, you can see this non-physical part of the plant emerge and sort of crawl or creep up the glass. Is that true? Can you tell us more about the stranger things you see in this process that might surprise people?
0: Well, yeah, I think that it's important to discuss these in the context of how they relate to our identity individually as well. So like, I might just start off by talking about the soul, the spirit and the body just really quickly so that people can identify what parts of those that really belongs to. The soul comes from the Greek word psyche, which means psyche. And that is our soul. So your psychological processes are your soul. They're your talents, your interests, your deeper inner thoughts, et etc. et cetera. And just like in the plant realm, there are two different grades of that. There is the fixed soul, which would be kind of like your fixed personality. And just like when we extract the fixed personality, like making Rick Simpson oil, for instance, Rick Simpson oil is the fixed sulfur of cannabis. So, for instance, or you know, sometimes we call that Phoenix Tears over here when I make it, and that's also what Rick Simpson initially called it before there were so many rip-offs, but that process extracts the color of the plant and it extracts all of its physical potency. And so the fixed sulfur would be in you, your hair color, your eye color, your skin color, way that you dress the way that you come across the sound of your voice your body movements all of those types of things would be your transpersonal fixed sulfur your volatile sulfur would be the things about you that make you you that i can't see or can't touch your emotions your inner thoughts what drives you as an individual and in the vegetable realm that would be the essential oil okay so that's what we're talking about as a combination of your psyche and psychosomatic nature together, those are what we would refer to as your soul or your sulfur. Your spirit is literally the amount of life force and discipline that you have that allows you to enact the volition of the soul. So the volition of the soul is like what you want to do, what it is that you're here to do, the purpose of your life, so on and so forth the less discipline that you have, the less you're actually able to perform those things. The more disciplined you are, the more you perform those things. And so spirit is actually made through discipline in the same way that we have to, in the plant realm, not only ferment a plant, but then distill it at least seven times in order to get the type of purity that we're looking for to be able to perform the types of distillation and extraction that are necessary for the rest of alchemical and spagyric pharmacopoeia. And so in the transpersonal world, your spirit really is the amount of life force that you have that you can dedicate to any of the things that you are here to do or that you want to do. So, so many people talk about, oh yeah, I wish I could really do that. Well, everybody is capable of doing absolutely everything. It's just that they have to build the spiritual energy and have the interest to do it. And where the soul and the spirit meet, That's where the magic happens to make those things work. And then the body, I think we're all very familiar with that, is the physical and physiological construction that is simply the vehicle to be able to house the energy of the spirit and the volition of the soul so that they can be performed in physical manifestation. So I just wanted to go ahead and define that really fast because when we talk about the volatilization of the salt like you were talking about, It's really important to understand that what we're doing is we're taking typically the salt of sulfur. So we'll take the Rick Simpson oil, for instance, and we burn that down. When you burn it, it turns into like this very dark black kind of crusty material. And we have to grind that down and calcine it again, grind it down and calcine it again over and over and over and then leach it with water and then repeat that process multiple times until we get all of the salts out of it. And once we have those salts, that's now called the salt of sulfur. And once we have that salt of sulfur, then we can put that in with the volatile soul or the essential oil of the plant. So again, if we're working with cannabis, this would be the essential oil of cannabis, putting that into a flask and applying 40 degrees celsius in typically an environment where the material is able to breathe so we don't lock this into a hermetically sealed vessel although you can but we leave it and we allow it to breathe and when this happens there are strange combinations that happen between the essential oil of the plant and the acids that might be in there and the terpenes that might be in there and the potassium carbonate and what will end up happening is that they will start to volatilize and creep up. The salts will start to volatilize and break open partially due to that reaction, partially due to oxidization. And they will start to creep their way all the way up the flask and all the way up and out. And what this is really significant of and tells us what we're doing and also how that medicine will ultimately end up working on an archetypal level in the body is that your soul, your higher soul, your interests are literally breaking apart the aspects of you that are limited by your skin color, your hair color, your eye color, your personality, your body movements, so on and so forth, and allowing that to soon match the vibration of the soul, that higher soul, so that they can fly together, so that they can distill, when we put alcohol in the volatile salts, they will actually distill over the helm, whereas if you put the salt of salt in a material, And you can volatilize salt of salt. So it's not like only salt of sulfur can be done, but it definitely has a much greater affinity for volatilization than the salt of salt does. And what ends up happening is that the body and the personality ultimately raise their vibration to be able to be at equal vibration to the higher soul and to those interests so that the energy or our spirit is able to dissolve and to distill them over the helm Of our distillation train so that everything has the same vibration everything's working on the same page and this is ideally one of the states that people look for in order for their transpersonal satisfaction in life they want their personality they want the way that they come across they want their talents and interests and their desires and the amount of energy they have to do that all to see eye to eye so that they're able to accomplish really great things and Typically tinctures that contain the volatile salt really allow people to experience that type of that type of experience based on what planetary ruler that plant comes from. So in the case of cannabis this corresponds to Saturn and Saturn deals with the structure of things. So how structured are you as an individual? How structured is your actual skeletal system? How structured are your thoughts and your desires and interests and how structured are your behaviors and disciplines and because the material contains all three soul spirit and body especially a volatilized body at this point that medicine tends to work on all of those levels simultaneously whereas other items of pharmacopoeia may only work on one or only a couple of those areas and possibly also work in different ways
1: Hmm. Wow, man. (laughs) It's a lot to take in, for sure. I don't think people are used to thinking about things like this, but you're great at breaking it down. And if we were trying to reconstruct the larger field of this work, you mentioned earlier that it's probably better to think of alchemy as something that folds under spagyrics rather than the other way around. And as I've listened to you more and more getting ready for this, I've heard you talk about it seemed like a kind of hierarchy to this practice of transmutation that almost works the other way because it gets increasingly dangerous. Like working with plants is a better way to start and then getting to metals would be more advanced because you're dealing with much more dangerous processes. I guess, can you talk to us about the dichotomy between alchemy and spagyrics based on the material you're working with? And are there any other material categories? Like, is there a, working with animals step between plants and metals or any other levels that we don't hear about as much?
0: Sure, that's a really great question. And in short, the answer is yes. So yeah, when you first start practicing alchemy, we typically end up starting with the herbs. Now, there are multiple different traditions of alchemy all over the world. And there's no unified tradition of Western alchemy, just within the Western branches. Okay, so There's lots of different forms, like whether you study Mutus Liber or whether you study Isaac Holland's work or Paracelsian works or Raymond Lully's works or any of these other works. They all start really in different places according to where that teacher started. But in the tradition of both Jean Dubuis, of the philosophers of nature, as well as Dr. Albert Riedel or Frater Albertus, you tend to start with the herbs as a result of them being much more safer and much more generous to work with. And so, for instance, when we are making alcohol, there are very low temperatures involved. Alcohol distills at approximately 76 degrees Celsius. And water at about 100 degrees celsius and so you're working with materials that could possibly burn you if they spill on the skin but they're not going to disform you and breathing in vapors of them may make you feel a little lightheaded especially in the case of ethanol but it's not going to absolutely kill you unless something goes terribly awry That's not the case when we start working with animal materials or mineral materials or metallic materials, for one. And so, on the physiological level, like just the level of practicality, they're much safer and more forgiving to work with. But also, the more complex a structure is, the easier it is to work with psychologically. So, metals are composed of only a single atomic structure that are repeated sometimes so they exist in clusters so you never like when you break apart a metal it's very rare to only see one atomic structure contributing to the crystallization it's like one atom for sure but they conglomerate in multiple different clusters of that same atom in order to create the crystalline structure known as metals but still they only have one atomic element to them Minerals then start to have two or more atomic elements, which as we know from our science classes creates what we would refer to today as molecules. So like for instance, calcium is a metal, calcium chloride is now a mineral. And so they become less stable and they become more volatile and they're composed of more things. Now here comes a plant and it starts to absorb the calcium chloride that's inside of the ground, along with multiple other minerals. And it breaks them down typically through microbiology and it turns them into amino acids and it turns them into, you know, plant hormones and so on and so forth. And so the plants are much less pure from a spiritual perspective because they are a combination of lots of different minerals that exist inside of the soil and some metals as well. And then animals are even more volatile than that. And then humans are the most volatile. And so, in this way, when we're, we start working with the herbs, it's a safe place because they're not too complex, they're not too volatile, and they're also not too fixed. And so, we're able to open them up and explore them in a way that we can still relate to on a conscious level with our spiritual and psychic faculties, as well as our physiological faculties. And they're not that complex. But when we start working with animal materials that are very complex, unless we're just working with teeth, bones, the mineral components, basically teeth, bones, horns, hair, skin, things like that, they do tend to get quite complex and they correspond to so many parts that are so similar to ourselves that if a person really isn't grounded in the philosophy and how to work and purify their own inner channels, they can experience certain states of psychosis Or psychiatric disorders as a result of working on them. And the same is true when you start working on mineral materials that are more advanced, and especially when you start working on metallic materials, because metals are the most pure form of consciousness that we have available to in all of the natural world, because they only correspond to that one atom basis to them. They are so pure. So when you start working with those, you're getting really to the heart and to the base of what drives our spiritual, psychic, and physiological evolution here. And I've personally known multiple people who have kind of gone off their rocker and had some weird things happen when they started to undertake the great work or the creation of the philosopher's stone. Just because of that, you're working with very, very pure forms of consciousness. And if you haven't purified those channels in your body through working with the lower kingdoms, then you're very susceptible to kind of having some strange reactions.
1: Hmm. I love it. And the only real working alchemist I know of is Don Nance. I'm sure you know of him. But for people who don't, he's got a few clips online. And in one, he shows a vial of something he calls dragon's blood. But he says that it's something he synthesized. And it's so powerful that he gave a few drops to a woman and she couldn't stop manifesting, which is dangerous if you can't control your mind enough to not go to dark places. It's pretty far out, but does this seem possible to you? Can a substance be synthesized that would have that sort of effect on the mind? How does that work?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So I'm not familiar with that particular item that Don is making, but I am familiar with both Don and his daughter, Crystal. And we've met before and chatted at the International Alchemy Conferences, and we were both interested in Ormus for a time. Yeah. So yeah, one of the things that I can definitely say is that in the realm of conventional Western alchemical pharmacopoeia, if something contains the sulfur of a material in strong concentration, so for instance, if we're talking about say the alchemical oil of gold or of copper or mercury or any of the oils of the metals, then those are the soul of the metal. And when you take those in, typically through an alcohol type tincture a preparation where they're dissolved inside of ethanol and then you take them into your body, what ends up happening is that they work on the psyche because that's the area that they came from. They are part of the soul and so they end up working on your soul as well. And this is how various items of spagyric pharmacopoeia really differ because everything is made out of sulfur, mercury, and salt. It's how you extracted the sulfur and which grade of sulfur how much of the sulfur, mercury, or salt and, you know, the balance of each of those and when they are added that ultimately determines the type of pharmacopoeia and how it works in the body, along with the planetary virtues and how they were grown, when they were harvested, when they were extracted or how they were extracted that might determine their planetary effects and which systems of the body that they're going to work on so with that being said yeah absolutely there are plenty of things that i've seen in fact i had a friend named jeremy years ago who tom waters came into town who was a colleague of mine who was working with robert allen bartlett and he was pretty new to making the oils of the metals but robert had showed him how to do all of this work and he came and gave a lecture and he started selling bottles of his alchemically prepared gold and We told everybody, never take any more than three of the diluted drops in this very specific alcohol-based preparation for any reason whatsoever. And Jeremy really didn't listen to that and he was taking like 20 drops an hour thinking that if a little bit is good, a lot is greater. And within about three to five days, I got a call from his wife who said, hey, listen, we have a new baby and Jeremy is trying to make deposits of gold into the thermostat and he's not talking any sense and he's completely lost his mind he thinks that he's sprinkling everybody with gold and he's always on the verge of tears and he's just having this crazy experience well he was caught in the kabbalistic Sefirah of tifaret which is basically the center of the tree of life and it's where a person one of its translations from hebrew to english could be beauty And he was literally caught in the state of beauty and obsessed with gold and felt like he was shooting gold out of his fingertips and he could make things work better by putting this, you know, what he was viewing as gold. I would call it psychological gold, putting this into other materials and trying to increase their vibration, trying to raise the vibration of other people to be able to see from the state he was. But he was literally uttering nonsense to the rest of the world, myself included. And didn't know how to integrate that experience. It took him almost five and a half years to get to a point where he was even remotely sane. And it was really only because of his brother that he was able to maintain a job. He looked after him and kind of helped him see that other people couldn't see that reality that he was existing in. And, yeah, it took a very long time, like I said, about five and a half years for him to really begin to stabilize to the point where he could even have normal conversations again.
1: Wow. Damn, that's interesting, but it's a tale as old as time, magicians, alchemists, people who get involved in the esoteric arts or entheogens. If you aren't careful, if you haven't worked on your mind right, (laughs) it'll get taken from you with these kind of things. So definitely uh, something I've heard. You know, that story rhymes with a lot of other sad, unfortunate stories of people who have tried to uh, maybe work above their level or go at this stuff too fast.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And again, you know, like that risk would have been very, very low had he not been working with just the psychological component of that material. If he had been taking a quintessence of gold, for instance, where the soul, the spirit, and the body were equally in proportion in such a degree that none of the four elements took precedent over the other but were perfectly balanced, that would be called a quintessence. He would not have had that particular type of experience it would still be a very bad idea to take large doses of any sort of quintessence material because you don't need that there is such a thing as over purifying the body and when you do that you tend to get deficient in lots of different minerals or nutrients besides the ones that you're taking in the most and so you know with everything it's just like Paracelsus mentioned over and over and over because you know he constantly had critics during his day that said you can't give somebody A medicine that's prepared from mercury, like he was healing syphilis with, Paracelsus said, "Well, everything is toxic. Absolutely everything. It's the dose that determines the poison." And so, the same thing is true with any medicine, actually, but especially so with spagyric medicines or what some people would refer to as alchemical medicines. And the reason is, you know, Jean Dubuis mentioned this a lot. He said, "If a little bit of something is good." a lot is not better. Stay on the low side, stay on the safe side. And it's better to take a little bit longer to get towards the desired healing effect by erring on the side of caution than it is to go overboard because you can always give yourself a little bit more medicine to get to the healing point that you need. You can't ever take away the medicine once it's been gifted to you. And that's something that some people need to learn experientially, unfortunately. (laughs)
1: <laughs> yes. Anyone who's taken their first dose of mushrooms or LSD should definitely heed that warning. It's yes. another thing that repeatedly happens to people. And you mentioned alcohol a couple of times, and this is a bit of a tangent, but I'm always looking for little manipulations or micro conspiracies, we could maybe call them. But I've heard you talk about brewing and fermentation a bit. And what can be said about the state of beer today and why it is that way? And what might be a better way to enjoy alcohol without it being quite so damaging?
0: Sure. So what ensues is not necessarily part of the alchemical tradition per se, but rather my own experience, and my own opinions based on being a brewer. I would say that, you know, because the church at a certain point created in Germany in particular, the Bavarian Brewing Standard, they decided that they were going to get away with using multiple different types of herbs for brewing and that they were going to focus primarily on utilizing hops. And, you know, all beer, when you take it, I mean, basically beer is, or ale is, a fermented malt. So you take barley, you sprout it, you dry it. That's now called malted barley. When you take that malted barley and you set it inside of water, All of the starches have converted to sugars during the malting process, and those sugars will ultimately ferment in an anaerobic environment. And that's the basis of making beer. But in order to do that, it's like really, really sweet, and it's not so pleasant tasting. It's kind of like sweet and cheesy, a little bit, beer is, because of the yeast that are found inside of the natural fermentation process that cause things to ferment. And so... In order to create a bittering agent they would add various different types of herbs and hops of course is a very bitter herb and so they started using that but hops is also a very lunar herb and it causes drowsiness and sleepiness and all these other things and it makes people be a little bit more docile. And chemically speaking, in terms of biochemistry, drinking a lot of hops increases the phytoestrogens in the body. And so especially men who are drinking a lot of beer will end up with what are called beer titties or, you know, men guts and all these other things that they've taken on a lot of the female properties that that herb is actually imbuing. They're taking on a lot of that property and they're not really realizing it because it's the fixed sulfur of the herb a water-soluble fixed sulfur that goes into the beer in order to give it that bitterness. India pale ales or IPAs being perhaps some of the most bitter besides sometimes like a barley wine or other things like that can also be a little bit bitter. So in the historical past, before that Bavarian brewing standard came in and hops became the only thing that you could technically make beer from, Cultures all over the place were making beer with multiple different herbs. And one of my favorite recipes is a 5,000-year-old Pictish ale that uses heather flowers and meadowsweet and bog myrtle in order to act as that bittering agent. And they become a lot more medicinal. And they have entirely different qualities, too, none of those necessarily being very lunar. And so it doesn't make you sleepy. Like, I can drink some of my Pictish ale. And feel like it's time to go on a nice serious bike ride or start working out or you know do some swordsmanship or whatever it is whereas other people who are drinking the same quantity of a hopped beer will definitely start to feel suppressed and a little chilled down and kind of tired and so on and so forth and so i think a large part of beer today actually has some negative connotations because of all of the hops that are included. And today there are two different terms that are used for herbal beers that do not use hops versus those that do use hops. So things that do use hops are referred to as beers and ales. Things that do not use hops but use other herbs are called gruits, G R U I T. And I tend to be of the opinion that using gruits is a much better, much more healthy way of brewing beers because you can include different medicinal herbs for the occasion that you want. So for instance in the winter time you might include using cinnamon and clove and other things like that instead of your hops as a bittering agent which also have warming elements to them to help keep you warm and keep your metabolism high and fend off against colds and virus like conditions and things like that during the winter time and the colder months when the susceptibility for those types of diseases dealing from cold are rather high disposition so yeah that's pretty much that and then if you take beer though especially that heather ale that i make the pictish heather ale and you distill it well now you are just starting to get into whiskey and poateen which is the irish unaged version it's like a clear version of whiskey so instead of being aged in oak it's just a clear spirit. And it still typically gets aged, but it's called pachin, P-O-I-T-I-N. And so, you know, every different thing that you ferment, whether you're dealing with agave, which is going to create like a tequila or a mezcal when you distill it out or whatever else, it's all of those distillates that end up like, for instance, you distill out wine, now you're getting brandy. You distill out your agave ferment, now you're getting tequila and mezcal. You distill out your beers. Now you're starting to get more whiskey style. You distill out like a potato mash or just like a general sugar mash or whatever. You might get a vodka or depending on how you work with it, you might also get a rum if you're working with molasses or treacle or other things like that. So that's pretty much the way that beers and spirits kind of evolve from the same place or what I should say ferments and spirits evolve from the same place.
1: (laughs) Nice. Well, cheers to that. We're getting a crash course in all kinds of good stuff today. And this is a provocative curiosity of mine, and I'm just interested in what you might have to say. But we know that the CIA has investigated some strange stuff that we could say is adjacent to spagyrics and alchemy. And many of the largest corporations also work on R&D that might surprise people if we were really privy to all of it. But I've always wondered If these tools that we're talking about today are really as potent as they seem to be, they gotta be alive somewhere, right? I mean, maybe this is part of why the Rothschilds and the Queen all seem to make it to 100 years old, or we know they can make artificial diamonds now. Maybe De Beers is getting their product from methods other than mining, I guess I would just ask, do you think there is anywhere in the elite circles or corporate basements where this stuff is still in practice in secret? Or are they really as ignorant at those higher levels as we are?
0: In order to take a look at that, you can't just answer it generally. You'd have to take a look at the organization subjectively, because just like you know, I went to school with thousands of people, but as far as I know, I'm the only one who developed this particular interest. The same thing is going to be true with people in any sector. It's not just because you might be royalty or might be in the corporate world very high up or be into these kind of elite circles that you even have interest. Like if I go to any Masonic lodge across the nation, very few of them, very few of any of the initiates, regardless of their degree, have any sense of what practical alchemy really is and how to perform it. Some of them have met guys like Mark Stavish, for instance, or a couple of these other folks who are within the alchemical know-how who are also parts of these orders, but the majority of them don't practice. The majority of them don't have any clue whatsoever. And in fact, most of their theory and cosmology around alchemy even within the initiatic degrees is entirely wrong or totally skewed because they don't have that practical knowledge or experience in actual alchemical arts and so you would really have to look at that very subjectively that being said I think the majority of people who are living really long and so on and so forth are less likely to be using alchemy or alchemical experiences or to have any sort of real understanding or grounded understanding of that whatsoever. But they do have a working understanding typically of various forms of theurgy. Okay, so Goetia or Babylonian money magic would be another really hot topic that is explored very high by intellectuals or also like adrenochrome rituals or different types of things like that that are actually pretty mindless and easy to perform if a person wanted to go down that path. And if they wanted to exploit their own evolution and karma, then they would be able to engage in those types of behaviors and get what it is that they're looking for in this life at the sacrifice of perhaps many other forms of incarnation that they would otherwise be able to take. And so instead of evolving progressively from one incarnation to the next, they tend to devolve. And really, it takes all forms like there's not one right way or one wrong way of going about things. It's just that some things are, from my perspective, terribly unethical to perform. And if you really consider the people who have gotten the farthest, it's that those who go the slowest ultimately end up accomplishing the most or Between the tortoise and the hare, the tortoise was the one who ended up winning because he went slow and steady and he just stayed within his own lane and did what he knew he was capable of doing. And I think that the wise typically tend to do those things where those who have not worked on their own personality flaws and insecurities and so on and so forth tend to want the most evolution, the fastest in the most direct way to getting what it is that they want, even if it comes with a heavy price. And those of us who go a little bit slower and consider ethics and other things, we just choose to abstain from those particular types of practices.
1: Fair enough. And just like a lot of things we might call ritual magic, the people who do crack this stuff, they tend to not talk about it much because it brings too much unwanted attention. And so from the outside, it takes talking to someone who knows this kind of stuff really well to even see the echoes or the whispers that it might even be going on somewhere out there. But, you know, great breakdown of uh, why they might not be, I guess.
0: Yeah, like from my perspective, well, here's a classic case. So one of the people who inspired me very greatly in my alchemical path was one of Froder Albertus's students for a, he was only a student for a short time. But he also created the Los Angeles Free Press. He ran the Way of the Magi School, or the Way of the Magis School, I think is what it was called, in California. He lived in Joshua Tree and served on the Board of Mental Physics. His name was Arthur Kunkin. And old art, after he got done working at the Paracelsus Research Society, and I think Froder was passing on, he was a librarian for a short time at the Paracelsus Research Society, according to him. He ended up taking a lot of the astronomical knowledge and went and worked as a consultant for one of the largest mining companies in Nevada, a gold mining company. And he was able to, as a consultant, make millions of dollars for himself by just telling them when to perform the extraction of gold and that it would increase a 2 to 5% increase as opposed to if they did it any other day. And so he showed that on a demonstrable level in a micro amount. And said, there you go, there's the results. I strongly suggest that you follow this wisdom. They did, and they ended up earning like a 5 to 7% increase over a 2 to 5% increase. And so that was just by using the astronomical knowledge. Now, that company and the equipment that they had would have taken millions, millions of dollars to be able to set up a proper gold mine the way that they were. Just to buy the property, to buy the equipment, to fund the staff, to do all those things. The CEOs of the company, regardless of which I have no idea if they were or not, but regardless of their levels of initiatic degree in various esoteric organizations, they were not employing any of those principles, which would have been in plain view had they been in various esoteric orders and then even of those like i know a guy who works for a mining company is a fuel company but he's a metallurgist who works for a fuel company because they have to go down through various levels of bedrock and all these other things in order to get to those what are conventionally called fossil fuels or you know petroleum-based fuels and they study the metals in there because if they can mine those as well then it's an extra source of income for them so they hire metallurgists and that metallurgist that i know who lives here in utah he does not practice any of those astronomical extractions for them even though he's a very highly paid employee for them so they may have people who are aware of these things within their organization but the awareness of how to do it how to pitch it how to make it business savvy and so on and so forth usually far over the heads and far over the application desires of the organizations that hire them or the corporations that hire them. So yeah, I would say like it's very, very, very highly subjective who you're taking a look at. Do I think that the Queen or the English royalty or folks like you know Johnny Depp, who seems to have never aged for <laughs> for decades now, do I think that they're performing alchemy? No. Am I pretty certain that they're forming adrenochrome rituals or taking adrenochrome? Yeah, that seems pretty clear and pretty obvious to me. Mm. And it's a way of exacerbating their own power as well, using very, very old techniques in the Babylonian style magical corpus.
1: Those are great points. Like power tends to just buy the knowledge of others rather than trying to understand it themselves. And politicians, monarchs, and businessmen have been consulting magicians and astrologers for as long as there's been an empire. So, you know, why wouldn't they do the same in this realm of alchemy and spagyrics to some degree? Of course, yeah, that was a great story. I'm sure that's kind of how it goes. They don't understand this stuff firsthand. They just purchase the expertise of people who've done the real work and never really seem to be appreciated all that much.
0: Yeah, that's typically the way that it is. And it's just like, you know, for them, it's just a transaction and they don't really have even that much interest in it. What they have interest in is aggrandizing their own power and they will use, you know, what comes easy to them as a resource, which in most cases would be money to be able to access the things that they want. Again, very few people have the discipline and the self-awareness that if they truly want something that the easy way ends up being the hard way and that the hard way in the long run becomes the easy way and so instead of taking that long way becomes the easy way route they will just end up trading resources to get what they want immediately instead of developing it for themselves
1: Mm -hmm. yeah that makes a lot of sense to me and Man, there's so many things I'm going to have to leave the cutting room for, but I definitely wanted to get into your store a bit and what you do before I let you go to get into the teachers themselves. I guess, can you talk to us about some of the things you produce regularly and how they are superior to other things on the market?
0: Sure. Well, and I don't know if I'd even use the term superior, but I'd say they're definitely vastly different. They work in a different way. So at the Phoenix Aurelius Research Academy, I'm constantly working on a wide number of different spagyric materials to be able to research their efficacy against various conditions, diseases, et cetera, in my wellness clients and among just our general supporters. So you don't even have to be working with me directly in order to purchase these things. And of course, we're just an organization performing research, so anytime somebody goes to our apothecary and purchases something, it actually funds our research because this work is vastly expensive and it takes an enormous amount of time to perform. And we bootstrapped 100% of all of the costs. We're not eligible for any grants because, you know, we practice astronomy and astrology and so on and so forth. And they think we're pretty woo and out there. So we're not applicable for grants, but we have to bootstrap the cost of everything in order to be able to perform this work. So what I do is I wild harvest and grow materials in a permaculture, organic or biodynamic way and make A tremendous amount of different spagyric remedies in the methodologies discussed by paracelsus and then what i do is i split test the methodologies to find out what the right way or the correct way of making these things is because the texts are not always very straightforward and in fact there's a lot of double blinds so a lot of research needs to go into even how to be able to produce them properly And so that's a huge part of my work. And then once I arrive on the actual correct methodology, then I take those methods, I reproduce them, and I make those materials available in completely limited batches in my apothecary. So unless something is really effective at doing something, I don't make more of the same product once it goes out of stock. I make it. And once it goes out of stock, unless I found that it's really good for a particular thing that no other plant or or other material is able to do, I don't ever make it again. So everything is limited vintage batch, uh, completely just made in order for the research and the people who purchase it are able to contribute to that research. Everything is iatrochemically, which means to say pharmaceutically active. But 100% natural and organic, meaning that all I'm taking is the herb and organic cane spirits in most cases and making these products. There's nothing else that goes into it outside of what is there. And I just follow the alchemical processes for processing these materials. So they are definitely very different than... Other processes that are out there. And typically, for instance, you can take the medicinal qualities of whatever plant that is that you're looking for. Like, for instance, if you want something for sleep and you read, oh, chamomile or lavender is good for sleep, the herbal tincture is going to be good for that typically. And so you can just find out what the qualities of the corresponding herbal tincture would be. And that's going to have the same quality as my materials. The only difference is, is that my materials will require, oftentimes, about 30 to 80% less dosage. So whereas you might need three tablespoons, five times a day of lavender tincture in order to sleep properly or to relax properly, you'll probably need three drops, maybe three times a day of my spagyric tincture of lavender, for instance. And so the dosage is drastically decreased. And this also honors the plant spirit by not requiring mass amounts of it to be grown and to be harvested In order to have the effect on a single individual, we're able to work with much smaller quantities of herbs that go much further, and therefore it's much more sustainable. So I really do feel that the focus of what I'm doing right now will be largely contributing to the medicine of the future just in that way alone. But then I also use IDF analysis and research, to which IDF means intrinsic data field. It's based in the work of Rupert Sheldrake and morphogenetic fields, morphic fields, so on and so forth. To be able to identify and address not only aspects that these spagyric materials could be good for, but also I work with wellness clients as well to determine how we can utilize spagyric cosmology, philosophy, and medicinal practices to help overcome many of their symptoms. And I typically tend to work with people whose symptoms are very wild, obscure, bizarre, and they've been turned away by the medical facility because they don't know how to work with them properly and they either tell them that they're making up their symptoms or that their symptoms don't exist or try and put them on a medication for the rest of their life that has very mild efficacy, if any efficacy. And those are typically the cases that I work on the most, although, you know, for folks who have symptoms pertaining to COVID-19, I work on those and we have drastically discounted prices on that too. Just because we want people to be able to overcome those conditions, see exactly how easy it is. And like I said, I have worked on dozens and dozens and dozens of cases now, and I have yet to see a single case where there isn't direct progress within the first 24 hours and usually no more than about five days to seven days max before a person completely eliminates those conditions.
1: Impressive. Definitely impressive. And yeah, it's so annoying because obviously the cases are spiking up. So I'm hearing on the news about a thousand local cases. And it's like, well, wait a second. I thought most people were asymptomatic. So why don't you tell us how many of these people that tested positive are even hospitalized? You know, give us, you know, they, they try to give us the numbers that are the most scary and they don't tell us about the 99% survival rate or how many asymptomatic cases. I mean, I could go on all day, but now is not the time.
0: (laughs) Yeah. See, and that's the thing is like, if a person really wanted to buy into the concept that there is a virus and that if their body has an antibody, present that that is detection that the virus is there and by the way these are the exact same tests that a goat and a fruit tested positive with you know that goes to show the intelligence and the belief system of the individual utilizing and believing those tests because realistically those tests are very, very false. Antibodies can be produced in a wide number of ways. There's absolutely no scientific evidence whatsoever that a virus has ever been isolated, or for that matter, that it's ever caused a disease. So when you take a look and you put all of this together and you say, oh, I'm gonna go get tested, and then you believe they're test materials, that's all you're going on is faith that it's actually true. And same thing with the news reporting on those cases that are rising. Because most of them are not hospitalized, which means that they don't know jack about the symptoms that are being developed. And so people just need to keep, like I said, keep a lid on their shit, be able to utilize rational, functional behavior, and to look at the perennial principles of medicine, because this is not the first time that diseases like this have popped up in the course of humanity. And how did people uh, overcome these things and survive and so on and so forth? Uh, in the past. And it was all by natural means. And by performing aspects of nutrition, largely, that are going to help keep a person sound and healthy.
1: So true. And it's just harder and harder because there's so many things out there right now trying to coax more of us into insanity. But you are a sober voice to help us uh, stay sane. And just one more thing about your website. I know you also do courses and apprenticeships. I wanted to mention that and uh, sell lab equipment too. Is there anything else more to say to round out your offerings on your website that people should know about? You know,
0: I am offering a free introduction to Spajaria course on my teachable page. That's phoenix-aurelius-research-academy.phoenixaurelius.com that's my teachable page you can also just go to teachable and type in phoenix aurelius research academy and it will take you to my academy you can enroll in the academy for free and you can also enroll in that first course for free which is called a brief outline of spagyric theory and philosophy and that's about two hours of video along with some other coursework i include jean dubuis fundamentals of esoteric knowledge in there and a number of other really cool free resources And yeah, I do teach immersion study programs. In fact, I've got another one coming up July 2nd through 4th where it's a one-on-one immersion where you come and you study and I walk you through exactly how to perform all these items of pharmacopoeia. And then I have also got another teachable course called Spagiria 1010 that is out right now and more that are on the way. Some are already filmed and just waiting to be edited. And those are really great because they walk you through exactly how to perform the work Theory behind the work and everything in very elaborate detail. And it's at a self study pace so that you can learn all of this in your own home, learn to set up a laboratory either in your kitchen or your garage or, you know, basement or whatever it is, and just work on things as your budget and your time allows you to. So, yeah, I do teach all of those types of things. And yeah, there's probably more besides that. Just visit my website. It's hard to remember all the things that I do, to be perfectly honest.
1: Yes, you're a busy guy. But, dude, this has been really insightful. I can tell just by having a conversation with you that this material has served you well. And that's the kind of thing that definitely makes me more intrigued. Thanks for taking the time and keep doing what you do, man. Take care out there.
0: Thanks so much, Greg. I really appreciate you.
1: Oh, oh, it's magic, people. What a show. One of the best. I am all jazzed up. Phoenix really knows his material well and provocative material it is. I think Crow was very right when he name-dropped Phoenix as someone that I needed to get on THC post-haste. He recommended a couple potential guests, actually, and I need to go back and re-listen to that episode now that I think about it. But as often as I've tried to dive into Mineral Alchemy, it's been a challenge. And plus people know this especially well because so often I'll have a guest who has written a little bit about alchemy in the past, but I usually can't get into that, so I see here eight years ago you wrote about X, Y, and Z kind of stuff, until we've put a nice package and bow around the bulk of a guest's latest work, which usually does take the full first hour. Just the nature of the game. But to get a chance to focus on it for a full two hours was just a real treat for me. And even Phoenix gave me a few more leads to follow when we want to dive into this again. Also, just with my outline from today's interview, I cut enough questions for a whole second show at least. So maybe we'll try to do that again before too long because I'm already prepared for it. And he was such a great guest. I do like how Phoenix can take the three parts of a thing, the soul, body, and spirit, the sulfur, mercury, and the salt, in that alchemical outlook and equate them to pretty much anything. As he says, they are universal principles, so it's not strange that they'd be able to be applied universally, but not everyone can articulate that as well as he can. And how ironic that in alchemy conversations, for anyone who's a long-time listener, I'm usually trying to get at practical alchemy as a science, and guests tend to say things like, oh, well, they tried that and it didn't work out, and alchemy really works best as a spiritual growth process for the individual, and that sort of stuff, and I'm usually not nearly as intrigued by that. I'm usually looking for the more tangible, but funny enough... When I did have someone here to talk about alchemy as a practical scientific process, I ended up thinking mostly about the way that he did break the alchemical model down for the life of a person and the body of a human being. Even talking about the salt of our tears when we quote-unquote break ourselves down and how to reconstruct ourselves better than we were before. The personal process of refinement. That was excellent stuff, I thought. Of course, that was more in the plus show, along with the sections on alchemical applications for permaculture, gardening, and biodynamic agriculture, and the stuff on astrological cycles, our particular times here in 2020, and plagues, which were also really interesting. I mean, there is so much more we can do with biodynamic agriculture on this show. Lots of meat left there for future guests. and. More episodes about magic and gardening. (laughs) Though if my 23-year-old self heard me say that, I feel like I'd want to take a hard pass, but we live and learn. And I really don't know what else to say. The dude crushed this interview, barely needed me at all, and I'd be very interested to try out some of his stuff. See if we can't lay these allergy problems to rest once and for all. But obviously that notion that we're here as custodians goes back a long, long time. That we have an environment that's a pretty great base level, but we can shepherd it along and refine it and maximize its potential. Which is a process that is humbling, because even if you make something more efficient or rearrange some things to light that fire of abundance, it's usually not something that overinflates the ego, Because you know your role in that process was important, but you usually have a deep appreciation that there even was something to rearrange, you know? Like, you might be able to mold clay better than anyone, and so you tend to give thanks for clay, period. Meanwhile, we've been smashing and burning and leveling the earth and its resources for so long... And that domination process probably does overfeed the ego because just look at us or look who started it. (laughs) Very mature, right? But I think this is very important and valuable stuff. I hope some of you guys were inspired and higher side news. I'm so, so tempted to talk about the last episode with Angela Davis and the feedback that I've gotten, but I just don't want to do it here. I'm sure I'll really go off when we get to the first reconfigured joint session podcast episode because, well, time and place are important, right? Today is not a song about Angela, it's a song about Phoenix Aurelius. But what it would relate to, and I should talk to you guys about, is our YouTube channel. Firstly, I've been saying for years that the YouTube comments are the saddest and most embarrassing cesspool of feedback that I get in general. Broadly speaking, of course, there are good comments too. But eliminating YouTube comments would actually reduce the trolling that I get to effectively zero. But when I posted some of the grosser comments from the last episode on Twitter... Several people were like, dude, why don't you just shut off comments and leave comments to the plus people? And I thought, actually, yeah, that's a great idea. I'm always trying to push people towards the podcast and away from the channel, whether we're talking about free or plus, doesn't matter. But why leave this one aspect intact that would draw people to YouTube rather than the podcast? So as of today, No more comments on the YouTube channel. I think if I wanted to go back and disable them for old shows, I'd have to do it one by one, so (laughs) I'm probably not going to do that, but from now on. Though I wouldn't really care if platforms like Podcast Addict or other podcasting apps had a commenting infrastructure for the free show, they just don't. And it has been a plus feature for a very long time, so If you think you got something to say that I just have to hear, sign up for Plus, because otherwise, I really don't owe anybody anything. Our relationship starts with me giving you something for nothing. Free listeners get a free first hour that contains zero ads or sponsors or any forms of monetization. And if you want to join Plus and reciprocate and also net yourself twice as much content, then let's talk there. But the volume of unsolicited advice and feedback that I get at this point is just overwhelming. It has been for a while. It's not just me. You've probably heard this from anyone with a good-sized audience. And for my own sanity, I've got to isolate myself a bit from it. And honestly, the vast majority of listeners are obviously cool. They just want a good podcast. And I can make the best podcast when I have a clear head. And I don't have certain things getting in the way of trusting myself. But the other major thing that has the YouTube channel even making its way to the forefront of my mind is that we had another show removed Nassim Haramine, for whatever reason. I thought that one was fairly tame in terms of hitting the pain points of the digital censors, but it just goes to show that anything can set them off, and the episodes have already done leave me very, very exposed to a shutdown, or another shutdown, a permanent one. It's fine, but I'm going to try and convert as many of those 70,000 subscribers as I can into legitimate podcast listeners until I can't anymore. Also, oddly, the episode with Gary Lockman got some restrictions put on it. It wasn't removed entirely, but it did get some age restrictions and some regional restrictions. I'm not really sure, and I just hate that middleman shuffling my shit around, and you should too. So it's another partial reason to remove comments from YouTube because it's one of the few differentiating features, and now there's even less reason for you to get your new episodes on YouTube as opposed to anywhere else. With that said, I do love you guys. I am very thankful and lucky to have the audience I have. It's 95% positive, and I don't want to seem ungrateful. But as a thing grows, so does that 5% negative, and I just don't know that human beings are built for this volume of opinions for this many years. I don't even think you have to have an audience to be tired of people's opinions in 2020, but Imagine if you did. Although I do love that we have so many people listening because when we have a great guest like Phoenix, he is going to get a lot of new appreciation from people who just weren't aware of him before. That's my role. I'm the connector. And honestly, that is the most fun part for me. And it's why I'm always asking you guys to show your appreciation to our guests. They are the true stars of THC. I'm just like, the scaffolding or something. But that said, I'm getting out of here. I hope you're all being extra kind to those around you. They definitely need it right now. And I declare this meeting of the Midnight Society closed. I've done my part. Your move, spagyric secret keepers, alchemy alienators, and naysayers of the natural sciences. Your fucking move.
2: This is important, hear what I said. I'm trying to tell you, it's not paranoia, not in my head, it's just the hard truth. Knocked on your door, while I still can, to ask you a question, cause I know your head is still in the sand. for the rest of your life. Oppressed, oppressed, but you're getting woke. You say you don't want to be stressed until the day you die. Tough luck, my friend. Did you get the memo? Can't you see that we're so screwed? Don't you know we're all food? Can't you just admit we're screwed? I'm gonna tell you this. You sit and wish, but we don't have a choice It seems we're stuck here But you can find noses, drown out the noise Now use that altar End up your magic game And listen to THC, you know You go with the entities If you ever see the UFO Don't be sheep to your slaughter for the rest of your life, Oh. you're getting woke. You say you don't want to be stressed until the day you die. Tough luck, my friend. Did you get the memo? Can't you say that we're so screwed? Don't you know we're our